Uh, that being said, let's, uh, if you're able, let's stand together as we read from Acts chapter 18. I'll be reading the first 23 verses. We'll be focusing mainly on the first 17 for the message. Uh, give careful attention uh, to this. This is God's word. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 18, Luke writes, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded, commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincrea, he had, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we thank you that your word is truth. We pray that you would sanctify us in the truth, that the same Holy Spirit who inspired Luke to record uh, these things for us and for our benefit, uh, that that same spirit would illumine our hearts and our minds this morning, that we would receive this as your word, that we would lay it up in our hearts and indeed practice it in our lives, that you would teach us through this. 
how to trust Christ, how to endure faithfully by faith. And in all of this, Lord, would you help us to see Jesus, for we pray in his name, amen. Uh, this, this passage is largely about endurance through opposition and how the Lord meets us in the midst of that to provide for all that we need. When I think about endurance, I, I usually think about running and, and marathons. I've never run a marathon, but I know people who have. Uh, several years ago, my sister-in-law ran in the, the New York Marathon, and, and for part of her training, she, she told me she would kind of run in increasing distances, kind of building up over a matter of weeks and months, uh, but not running the full 26.2 miles for the marathon until the day of the big race. The, the point of the training was to kind of build up, but not, not fully run the full distance, but to build up endurance for the day so that you could persevere uh, through the race all the way to the end. And that's really what's required in a race of that distance is quite a bit of endurance. And so as you know, in marathons or any kind of long distance running, along the way they kind of build in uh, these mechanisms to help the runners endure. So you've got the water stations along the way where people are handing out cups of water and I never could figure out how to drink the water while I was running. And so usually it's just a splash to the face and then you keep going. But they've got the water stations and in a marathon uh, in a place like uh, you know, New York City, if people are coming to support you, what they're doing is they're kind of, they're finding the places where you're going to run past them and then they're cheering you on. Uh, they're clapping, they're yelling at you that you can do it, you can make it, and then they, they run to the next spot where they'll see you. And again, they cheer you on because you need endurance through to the end. And part of what gives you that uh, success is you know, okay, I've run 15 miles successfully, I've run 17 miles successfully, I've run 20 miles successfully, I've run 23 miles successfully, I can do this, I can, I can run the extra distance and make the way to the end. Paul's mission is in many ways, has in many ways been like a marathon. Uh, it's a task that has required endurance on his part. But I want you to think about Paul's mission as a marathon in a slightly different way. Because it's not really been a marathon where he's got buddies along the side cheering him on. It's not been a marathon where he's got water stations where people are giving him Powerade and water to help him keep going. You can think about Paul's missionary journey uh, like this kind of marathon. Paul makes it to the first mile marker. Um, Lydda, or um, not Lydda, uh, Derby and Lystra and Iconium on this missionary journey. There's internal celebration as he's made it to these places and preaching the gospel. Uh, and then someone runs in from the sidelines and starts to harass him along the way. He makes his way to the next mile marker the next town along the, the way. And this time it's not just an individual, now it's a crowd. Crowd rushes in from the sidelines of Paul's marathon and rather than just verbally harassing him, they start beating him uh, with rods or perhaps throwing stones at him. So he gets up, he makes his way to the next mile marker and wouldn't you know, the group from the last mile marker showed up at the next one. They jumped in again and started beating him and got everybody else in town to start beating him up again. Lystra, Derby, Iconium, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens. All along the way, Paul has faced opposition, even while there's been mild success in these places where God has blessed the preaching of the gospel. But you can imagine, by the, Paul, by the time Paul gets to Corinth, 
he's likely weary. He's likely worn out. He's been in jail. He's been beaten severely in multiple ways, in multiple places, everywhere facing violence and hostility. Now here he is in Corinth, and he's alone. He's left Timothy and Silas in Athens, kind of left abruptly and told them to remain there so that they could help establish the church. But he's in Corinth. He's by himself. His companions are not with him. He's likely running low on the funding that has allowed him to focus his efforts on preaching the gospel in this way. Uh, And we can imagine that this might be a place of discouragement for Paul. And yet it's in the midst of this opposition that is intensifying for Paul that the Lord meets him in this vision and provides for him four things that give him endurance. We'll talk about those in a minute. And so I want us to think about kind of the parallels here. Paul's mission, opposition, discouragement that he's facing, how the Lord meets him in the midst of that as parallel to our own sense of mission as a church and really our own living for Jesus and seeking to be faithful when there's difficulties. There's challenges, there's uh, fears within and foes without, as the old hymn says, that we all face discouragement along the way, maybe opposition from the outside, that we need the same things that the Lord provided Paul with in the midst of that opposition. And the good news is that the Lord meets us in very much the same way. So I want to look at two things as we walk through this passage together. First thing I want to look at is how the opposition to the gospel is intensifying. And then the second thing I want us to look at is how the Lord meets Paul in that opposition and provides for his endurance and even blesses the ministry with fruitfulness in the face of opposition. So first, let's look at how the opposition intensifies as he gets into Corinth. Luke kind of gives us some hints about rising and increasing opposition in the broader Roman world, and then we see it in Corinth as well. Paul arrives in Corinth without his companions, Timothy and Silas, uh, but he makes a connection with a Jewish couple, Aquila, it's the husband, and Priscilla, the wife, uh, who, as far as we can tell, they're already Christians by the time they get to Corinth, independent of meeting Paul. Uh, We're never told how, but that's the impression we get, uh, that they're already followers of Jesus. But because they are Jewish Christians... They, along with all the other Jews who had been living in uh, Rome, had been kicked out by a decree of the emperor. And uh, the historical record tells us about this particular decree from the emperor Claudius. It says that at this time, uh, Claudius evicted all of the Jews from Rome because the Jews had been stirred up uh, at the provocation of a man who the writer calls Crestus. And, and most scholars think that this is a reference to Christ. They just spelled it wrong or they didn't understand who it was talking about. So during, during this time, there are Christians in Rome, and they're closely associated with the Jews, and so the emperor kicks them all out as Jews. And so there's Christians in Rome who've left, uh, and these two in particular, Priscilla and Aquila, find themselves in Corinth. So there's this broader opposition rising up even against the church in Italy, in Rome, Uh, but we also see it here in Corinth. Uh, Notice kind of you have more of the same pattern. Paul, as his pattern is, goes to the synagogue first. 
to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And he's reasoning with them in the synagogue, trying to persuade them that Jesus is the Christ. But notice how quickly things turn. Sometimes Paul has a few weeks in a synagogue before things turn. But here, verse 6, they immediately oppose him and revile him. Uh, The word is blaspheme. Uh, They revile him for this message that he is preaching about Jesus. And Paul's response is equally strong. Uh, He shakes out his garments, kind of as a symbolic way of saying, um, I'm not responsible for your response. I've done my job. I've preached the truth, but it's up to you to respond to it. And since you're reviling us, I'm, I'm, I'm shaking my garments as much the same way that Jesus' disciples were told, you know, kind of shake the dust off your feet if, if the town rejects you and move on your way. So there's this increased opposition But to add to it, to make matters worse, Paul leaves the synagogue. This time he doesn't leave town. Normally that's what happens. The Jews rise up in opposition to him. Maybe they're throwing stones at him. There's violence, and he gets out of Dodge, right? Or his his, uh, companions, they cart him off while they stay to settle things down or whatever. But this time he doesn't leave town. He goes next door to the synagogue. And so here Paul is. The synagogue's mad at him. And he doesn't leave town, he goes next door, and he keeps on preaching, and there's this increased opposition. Furthermore, the ruler of the synagogue, a guy named Crispus, he's converted along with his whole household. And you can imagine the anger of those who were in the synagogue. Not only have we, as this guy said, that our blood's not on his hands, and he's left, he's not only gone next door, but our leader, Crispus, has followed him as well. So there's this intensification of opposition to Paul's ministry in Corinth as he continues to preach the gospel. And we, I think, can imply from verse 9 that Paul was in a place of deep discouragement. Otherwise, uh, there'd be less reason for Jesus to come to Paul in this vision. Uh, this, this direct revelation from Christ to Paul. And what we see here is that even as the opposition intensifies, Jesus meets Paul in the midst of that with four things to give him endurance. And so I want to kind of park the car here for a minute and look at these four things that the Lord provides for Paul uh, to give him endurance and then think about our own lives, how the Lord provides these same things for us. Notice verses 9 and 10. Let's just look at the vision for a second before we talk about the four things. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Paul was clearly being challenged internally and by the opposition around him and was was likely considering leaving, um, possibly not sure, but possibly just kind of giving up on this city and moving on his way. And the Lord meets him with four things. First, we see the Lord meets him with the people of God. This is not directly related to the vision, but notice how Paul was provided for with the people of God in Corinth. Uh, First, through Aquila and Priscilla, this Jewish couple who were engaged in the same uh, trade that Paul was engaged in, kind of leather workers, tent makers, who also happened to be Christians. 
Paul shows up in Corinth alone without his companions, but the Lord provides people. He provides the people of God in Priscilla and Aquila to come alongside him uh, and to encourage him in his ministry. Notice verse 5 as well. Silas and Timothy show up. His companions finally make it from Athens. And I think the impression that we're to get from verse 5 is that not only do they show up with their own personal encouragement and support for Paul, but they also show up with funding. Uh, the church in Philippi was supporting Paul. The church way over in Syria in Antioch was supporting Paul in this mission. And Timothy and Silas presumably show up with funding because in verse 5, there seems to be a shift where Paul was no longer having to divide his time between tent making and preaching. And verse 5 tells us that he was occupied with the word and the idea is that he was now able to focus solely on preaching. God provides for Paul the people of God. I think it's worth our pausing for a second to consider how important it is as Christians that we surround ourselves with the people of God and how much, how deeply encouraging that is for us. You can see this in Paul's own letters. If you look at the end of Paul's letters, oftentimes it feels like a grocery list that we're just supposed to kind of tick through because part of what he's doing is he's sending greetings. So-and-so greets you. So-and-so greets you. Remember so-and-so. Send my greetings to so-and-so. And there are these lists. And we oftentimes kind of run through that list because we don't always know who these people are. But the point is, it's the people of God. And Paul has been surrounded by these people. He's been encouraged and supported by them. And there's been this mutual relationship of love among the people of God. And part of the point of that is to drive home to us, we need the same thing. Uh, we need, in the midst of discouragement, in the midst of opposition, we need the people of God as well. Consider our own tendencies often. Sometimes we tend to isolate ourselves. We, we maybe pride ourselves on being self-sufficient and following Jesus. Uh, you know, it's just about Jesus and me, and perhaps we diminish, sometimes, I mean, not all the time, but perhaps we diminish the immense value that Jesus has given us in the local church, surrounding us with God's people and the gifts of the Spirit for the building up of the body. And so we, we isolate ourselves sometimes. I don't need anyone, kind of a lone ranger Christianity. But you'll be hard-pressed to find that as the norm and the example presented to us in Scripture. Christians are called to live in community, that we need the Lord, and one of the ways that the Lord provides for us is through one another providing people. There's also a tendency for us to, and this is maybe more of a challenge, to live in a way in which we kind of protect ourselves from one another. Uh, Christians have a unique calling. We're called to be a people who always acknowledge our sin, to be the first repenters, to be those who are vulnerable with one another and saying, uh, I am struggling to trust the Lord. I'm, I'm struggling to lead my family. I'm struggling to love my children. I'm struggling to do the right thing with the money that the Lord has provided me. I'm struggling to love my wife. I'm struggling to love my husband. Whatever it is, Christians are called to this unique kind of community where we can openly acknowledge our struggles, openly acknowledge our, our weaknesses, and, and not be surrounded with a bunch of wagging fingers. 
because all of us know that we can say the same things of ourselves, because we all come equally to the foot of the cross, because we all come equally to Jesus in deep need of his amazing grace and of his forgiving love. And when we've embraced that, it's supposed to create this community where we can be both vulnerable and safe, where we can be both open and honest and know that the love of Christ is ours through one another. And that's, that's a challenge that only the gospel and a deep faith in the gospel can meet because it's only in the gospel where we see that we are known fully by the living God, the one who, from whom no thing is hidden, the one to whom we ultimately must give an account that he knows us fully inside and out. All the thoughts, all the intentions of our hearts, everything is laid bare before him. What a wonderful thing that Jesus has given himself for us so that we can be both fully known and fully loved by this God and forgiven of all our sins and not fear. Can you imagine not fearing walking into the presence of a holy God because Jesus has gone ahead of us? And that's supposed to create this community in the church where we see our need for one another and we're able to love one another in that tension of being vulnerable and honest about who we are, and yet at the same time loving and supporting of one another, directing one another again and again to Jesus, who covers our sin with his righteousness and who really grants us forgiveness and change. There's a story that R.C. Sproul tells about going with his wife and other couples to Eastern Europe uh, for ministry during uh, kind of, I don't know if it was during Soviet uh, rule or, or if it was right after that, but it was a period where Christianity was still not very much accepted uh, in that area. And they were on a train, and as they were passing into Poland, these big kind of burly security guards get on the train, and they're checking tickets, checking passports, and so Sproul and his wife and this other couple uh, pull out their passports and hand it to this big soldier, and he looks at the passport, and he looks at them, and he says, you're not Americans, and they get a little scared. You're like, oh, what's going to happen? Uh, and uh, he looks at the bag next to Sproul's wife, and, and he sees kind of this, the end of the Bible sticking out of the bag, and he says, what's that? They meekly hand him the Bible, and he opens up to Ephesians 2, 19, and points to this passage that says, you're no longer strangers, but citizens in God's household. <laughs> he says, you're not Americans, I'm not, what did I say? Did I say Poland? I meant Romania. I'm not Romanian. We're citizens of heaven. God's people. <laughs> and then he looked at the other guards and he said, these people are okay. And they went on their way. God provides his people for us, uh, oftentimes when we least expect it, but indeed when we most need it. And so we ought to seek encouragement among God's people to help us live faithfully as Christians not only does he provide his people, he provides his presence. He provides his presence. And that is right at the heart of this promise, this vision that Paul receives. Jesus says, don't be afraid. Keep speaking. Don't be silent. Don't fear, but keep doing what you're doing. In verse 10, he grounds that command with a promise. He adjoins promise to command. Don't be afraid, for I am with you. This is a prominent promise throughout the Bible. Again and again, we hear the Lord saying, don't fear, 
Don't anxiously look about you. I am your God. I am with you. Surely I will strengthen you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And this promise of God's presence is right at the heart of his covenant with his people. That uh, I am with you, never to leave you nor forsake you. We don't know if Paul was feeling like God was absent if his experience was like that, I don't, I don't think we get that impression. But I think we all understand the temptation to consider in the midst of hardship, where is God? Is he with me? Can I know and enjoy his presence even in this hardship? And so Jesus meets Paul in the midst of his discouragement and says, I am with you, with you in grace, with you in comfort, with you in power. Paul could continue his mission without fear because God is with him. It's a way of saying, you can't do this on your own. That was never the plan in the first place. But a reminder, if I'm with you, if I'm with you and you're relying on me, then I will carry you through. The Lord had designed Paul's mission and he designs a Christian life in the same way, both in community with God's people but also independence upon the God who is present, the God who is not absent. He's not the unknown God. He's not the God far off and disinterested. He's the God who is in the midst of our lives. And we see this so clearly at the cross, where Jesus, who is called Emmanuel, God with us, comes into our sin, comes into our world, takes our flesh upon himself, and gives himself at the cross for our sins. He's condemned in our place. He became sin, the very thing that his father could not look upon, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God is present with us in grace and in mercy, and he is present with us in comfort and encouragement. He provides the people of God as well as his very own presence. Not only his people, his presence, but his protection. Uh, notice again verse 10. Jesus tells him, no one will attack you to harm you. No one will attack you to harm you. Now we should say at this point, this is a very specific promise to Paul in this very specific situation in Corinth. No one will attack you to harm you. Uh, I think it would be unwise of us to take this as a very general promise to all of us in every situation that you will never face opposition, that you will never face harm, that you will never be attacked for your faith. That's not what's happening here. It's a very specific promise to Paul, and yet it's one that still has implications for us even in our own situations. Well, let's talk for a moment about what this promise is not and, and what it is. This promise that Jesus makes to Paul is not a promise that he will no longer face hardship or oppression uh, or opposition, rather, for his faith in Jesus. Uh, that's universally not ever promised in Scripture, uh, that you will never face opposition. That's, that's, uh, in fact, the opposite is actually promised to you, that you will often face opposition for faith in Christ. Uh, so if anybody comes along, just as a side note, and seeks to convince you that the Christian life should be one of ease and comfort, see what else they're selling because it's probably junk. The Bible never promises us a life of ease and comfort. And yet this promise that is made to Paul, while it's not a promise of no more hardship or opposition, uh, it is still a promise of protection. 
We see, though, in the very next section, uh, in verse 12, after God makes this promise, after Jesus promises Paul, no one will attack you to harm you, that he actually is attacked. It's the same word Luke uses. So what, what's, what's going on here? He's clearly not promising no more opposition, but he is promising uh, that when he is attacked, that the Lord will protect him from harm and that God's purposes will prevail, that their attacks will not accomplish the evil they intend for Paul. In other words, it's what Genesis 50 verse 20 tells us, that while they intend evil, God intends it and will indeed use it for good, and that God's intentions always prevail. So look, look what happens when Paul is attacked and how God keeps this promise to protect him in the midst of that. In verse 12, the Jews rise up with one accord and they attack Paul and bring him before this guy Gallio, who is kind of the governor of this region for Rome. They make this attack and then uh, verse 14, before Paul can even open his mouth to defend himself, to say, wait a minute, hold up. He doesn't even get to say anything. Gallio basically says, this doesn't concern me. This is your problem, not mine. I'm not going to deal with it. Get out of here. And he does not allow the Jews to bring any legal charges against the Christians in this area, which by implication is a way of saying that they've got legal protection for their faith. Gallio is affirming kind of indirectly and implicitly, but truly the legal status of these Christians. The Jews wanted him to punish Christians as being illegal, and he refuses to do it. This is a significant victory for Christians in Corinth. It's the way God keeps this promise to Paul that he does not allow this attack to result in harm. And it even backfires on the Jews um, in their own attack. As Gallio dismisses them, one of their own is they kind of turn on him. Notice verse uh, I'm sorry. Notice verse 17. They all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, I guess the new ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio pays no attention to this. Even this, God uses for good. Luke mentions here Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, who maybe took over from Crispus, who was converted prior to this. And after this failed attempt to bring charges against Paul, apparently the synagogue members turn on their own leader in violent frustration at his failure and defeat. They seize him, beat him, and Gallio pays no attention to it. Certainly there's some Roman anti-Semitism going on here, but I think maybe there's more. When Paul writes later to the church in Corinth, uh, he goes on his way, he ends up in Ephesus, and from there he writes back to this church in Corinth. He addresses it from himself and from Sosthenes, the brother. Now, there's no other mention of Sosthenes outside of these two spots here in Acts and then in the first letter to the Corinthians. It's not entirely clear that it's the same person. Some say yes, some say no, we don't really know. So I'm just full disclosure, I don't know. But I'm taking a guess here. Because the connection seems too strong to be a coincidence that you have two men with the same name, both in Corinth and connected with Paul in some way. I think it's possible. I think it's reasonable to think 
that God used even this attack on Paul that turned back on the Jews and particularly on Sosthenes to perhaps bring Sosthenes to faith in Jesus. We don't know for sure, but it seems likely that this is the same one who somehow accompanied Paul and joined him in writing back to the Corinthians, that perhaps he left the synagogue and accompanied Paul and found hope in Christ. What they intended for evil, whatever the result of that was, whatever they intended for evil, God used and intended for good. God provides his people, he provides his presence, he provides his protection, and he reminds us of his predestinating love. He reminds us of his predestinating love. There's probably a better way to say that, but it wouldn't start with P. So you got to go with predestinating love. Notice the end of this vision that Jesus gives Paul. He says, no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. I have many people in this city. That does not mean that when Paul showed up, there was a whole host of Christians already waiting for him in Corinth. We know that's not true. Corinth was a a city known for its immorality. It had changed since it earned that reputation, but you had in the city of Corinth a temple to the goddess Aphrodite, which was often associated with uh, uh, cult prostitution. And so they had this reputation as an immoral city. It's a port city. So you have sailors and all kinds of tradesmen coming in. It's a vast mixture of ethnicities and and every class of person that you could imagine, all mixing it up in this cosmopolitan city. Uh, It was not the bastion of morality and holiness or Christian faith when Paul got there. You can even tell when he writes them later, uh, particularly in the first letter that he sends them, they still got problems. They're still struggling with the residue of indwelling sin and and these pagan influences that they had. Jesus does not mean there's a bunch of Christians, you'll find them, they're over there. What he means is, from before the foundation of the world, before there was anything such as time or space or people, that Jesus chose to set his love upon many who were in Corinth at that time when Paul was there. And that Jesus had chosen this time for Paul to be in Corinth, to remain there, not to leave immediately, but to remain there, to preach what Paul says, Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ and him crucified for 18 months, a year and six months, proclaiming Christ because Jesus had many people in this city and He placed Paul there so that they could hear the word of Christ and through hearing the word of Christ, come to faith in the good news of the gospel. Paul needed this encouragement that Jesus had many people and that he had a plan in this city from before the foundation of the world, independent of Paul, independent of Paul's discouragement or whatever meager fruit he was seeing. Jesus said, I have many, many people in this city. And the result of that is verse 11 Paul stayed a year and six months. He'd never done that before. Every other place, it was two weeks, three weeks, maybe a month, but not any more than that. And here he stays a a year and six months. Why? Because Jesus had many people in this city, and he was using Paul to bring them to himself. Fulfilling the covenant promise, I will be your God, you will be my people. Jesus placed Paul there for such a time as this. 
Though discouraged, though deflated, though perhaps ready to move on, Paul remains for 18 months in Corinth, preaching and ministering, teaching the word of God as Jesus was bringing his people to himself through that ministry. It's as if Paul was saying, how could I stop now when Jesus is at work bringing these many people to himself through this ministry? I think for our own application, as we face times of challenge and discouragement, opposition perhaps, struggling to see how God is at work, struggling to see his presence, uh, struggling even to live among his people, we need the same reminder that if Jesus has chosen us from before the foundation of the world to be his beloved people, to be adopted into his family as sons and daughters of the living God, then we can have the assurance that that is a relationship that will never, never end, that will never falter or fail, that if Jesus holds us and says to us, you are my people, there's nothing within you and nothing outside of you that can change that wonderful truth and identity that Christ proclaims of us, that you belong to him. If Jesus has saved us, he saved us not by accident, not by plan B, not as an afterthought, but as a deep intention of the heart of God from before the foundation of the world. And if that's the case, then he will bring everything about to accomplish his purpose, and he will not let us go. Isn't that good news? That Jesus, in the midst of opposition, in the midst of discouragement, provides for us his people, the people of God who love the gospel and who love the grace of God, who know forgiveness and extend forgiveness, who help one another to follow Jesus faithfully, that God provides the people of God in the midst of that discouragement and challenge, that he provides his own presence in grace and in comfort to never leave us nor forsake us, but to always be with us even through the most difficult and dark of times. He is with us, that he provides his protection, that promise that whatever comes our way, he intends it for good even if it is intended for evil against us, and he will use it in that way, even as he promises to do. And that finally, all of it directs our hearts back to his predestinating love, his election, his gracious choice of his people and his promise to not only choose them, but bring them to faith in real time and to hold them fast so that if we are in the hands of Jesus, we can believe that promise that he makes. I will never let you go. No one can snatch you out of the hands of Jesus. May we find confidence in that and may we find fuel for endurance by clinging to these wonderful promises that are ours in Christ. Would you pray with me?